Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Ephesians 5, 7 through 14. As you're turning there, it is good to be gathered together this morning. Uh, Some of you here in our church building, and of course, others of you at home watching on the live stream. Um, Wherever you are, we're thankful that you are able to hear the preaching of the Word this morning. And as we look together to it, we look forward to the day in which you will, of course, at home be able to be with us all together again in person. Um, Before we worship in the Word this morning, I just want to take a moment and remind you of something as your pastor, as one who has to look over your souls and who loves you. And I know I represent the elders as well when I say this. Um, I think it's fair to say that even though we trust God and we believe in his sovereign action, that we are all ready to be done with 2020. Um, Not that means that all of a sudden January 1st, 2021, everything magically becomes great again. I know that, we know that, but of course, when we say that kind of stuff, we, what we mean is that it's been a long, hard path full of stuff that we were not ready for, all kinds of things that have changed our lives. We're sick of the news. We're sick of the election coverage. We're sick of COVID. We're sick of all these different things, and they've become a, a great deal of difficulty for us to work through all these different things. And we would together say, here, here, let's get to 2021 and have all this go away from us. Last week, we moved back into our building here together um, to meet together inside, and we know that some of you rejoiced with that decision, and others of you were discouraged with that decision. Some were able to come, and some were not able to come, even this morning as we sit here and talk about this together. Now, we aren't a political entity. We're not a democratic society in the, of itself. We are the body of Christ. We together are an expression of Jesus Christ's body here on earth which we rejoice in, and we're thankful for this very thing. Um, I want to remind you, though, because this is who we are, that being the church does not happen simply because we meet all together in one place on a Sunday morning. Neither does it happen without meeting together on a Sunday morning together either. As the church, we are not fighting the battle for church attendance. Just, I just want you to get, get that out of your minds. If that's what, I'm, I've talked to so many different pastors and leaders that are like, what's going on with your church? High numbers, low numbers? What is going on with everything? And we understand that, obviously. But that's not the battle that we are fighting for day in, day out. Our perspective must be way bigger than that. Just because we gathered together in this room this morning doesn't mean that this group somehow automatically becomes more holy or more healthy or more mature in Christ. That's not the only way that this happens. We recognize that the church is, it bees, it is the body of Christ by virtue of him working in it. This is an expression of that truth. This is a command for us to be involved in this very thing. But it is not the only command for us to be doing. And we recognize that that's true. We know that it's far bigger than just trying to get our attendance numbers up as though somehow that would create better influence and then all of a sudden we'd be able to have this group of people doing the right things. 
and as though we could actually answer Jesus and say, hey, we got a lot of people in this building. It was great. If we wanted to do that, you know we would change our tactics. That would be completely different from what we think we should be doing week in and week out. As a church, we're not fighting for attendance. We're striving to be the body of Christ, loving God and loving one another, and of course, loving those that are around us as well, the world. Um, we are not trying to only do this by joining together on this morning, but rather, as we've seen throughout our last couple of years together, it's by doing one another's spiritual good. That means loving one another. That means building one another up in Christ Jesus. And that is what I want us to call, to call us to this morning, remembering that it's more about attendance or more than about just somehow being able to get together in one space. All of the things that we've talked about for years are still at play. All the things that it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ are what together we are pursuing because of the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. It compels us, therefore, to live loving him and loving one another. John uh, you know, 13, 35 is still at play here, right? Let me just read these two verses, 13, 34, and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter if we're in a pandemic or not. We are the body of Christ, and we are called to act as his people. This is the truth no matter what's going on. It doesn't somehow give us a pause from doing all the different things that Christ has called us to do. Obviously, it may be more difficult if we have some of these natural dangers. There are going to be struggles for us. But it does not take and make sure that all of the spiritual things that we're supposed to do, we're exempt from doing them. We don't put on pause being the body of Christ. We still have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, calling us to act in true reality and truth. So, we understand that the situation demands different responses for different things. However, our mandate has never changed. So, I would call us then, church be the church. You're not getting to just be secular for these months away. That You don't get to do that stuff. No, no, no. We are in Christ, a new creation being renewed by the spirit of our mind, as Paul showed us. So don't grow weary in doing well. You might have to be more creative. Don't grow weary. Remember the truth that there have been plagues and pandemics for years. This is not new. So I'd call you to this. Do the work that we are called to as brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that God would graciously help us to obey and therefore bring glory to God. Let's look at Ephesians 5. Uh, we're going to start in verse 3. I'm going to read through 14. Our text today is 7 through 14, um, but we'll start in 3. This is God's word. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord." Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 
For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything's exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that, is, that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we bow before you today, and we say with Jesus, hallowed be your name. You are sufficient for all of our needs. You are holy, you are just, and you are merciful. We, your people, come to you for bread this morning. Um, we all know that our, my opinions and my wisdom are no better than the next philosopher down the street or self-help guru that will come across our televisions. But we haven't gathered here to hear my opinion. We have gathered to worship you, O God, and to hear from you. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so, Lord, we ask you to lead us today. Give us exactly what we need and lead us in your ancient paths. Use your word mightily this morning, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We often think of our obedience kind of as an end in and of itself. We know how much it takes to get to the end of obedience and trying to obey God. Like God has taken us from death to life. He's shown us the truth. He's taught us what it's rightly to do. And he has empowered us by the work of his Holy Spirit so that we can do what he has called us to do. And so as a result, we glorify God with our obedience. And as Paul says in Romans 12, this is our spiritual act of worship. This is reasonable as we live this out. It is worship to God. Our obedience, when it's done in faith, is a beautiful act of worship to our God. 1 Peter 4.11 says it like this, that whoever serves God is to be one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion and, for, and power forever. Amen. Now, that would be enough if it were all for the honor and glory of God. And this is certainly the ultimate end, that God receives glory in all that he does and that he does in us. We see that our obedience does this. It is certainly enough that our obedience brings glory to God. But there is another use of our obedience. It's very useful in that way. Uh, may I remind you that at one time, you did not know God through Jesus Christ, whether it was being a young child or maybe you got saved later on in life. May I remind you that at one time, you did not know and did not believe the truth. Uh, at one time, you and I lived according to lies, not the truth. We lived according to a different set of what we, what we thought were truths. But instead, we find out in Christ that they were all lies. It was not true. We thought they were true, but, you know, they, eventually something shone onto it and helped us understand that they were actually lies. But the, there came a time when we were confronted by the truth of God's word, and we realized that we needed to change. Something happened to show us a new and better way. It showed us the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But for most of us, that was really difficult and an ugly happening. And what I mean by that is we had the light shone on the things that we did and we saw what they really were. We saw that we were taking part in things that did not only or against God, but eventually would destroy us. We started to realize that the things that we were doing were actually built on lies. It was absolutely foolish to continue in these ways. 
We saw this and exposed our way of living for what it really was. The truth showed that all my living was wicked, tainted by pride, undergirded with greed and lust and selfishness. All my motivations were dirty. I had all these different things that were not God-honoring, but were rather all about me, all about pleasing me. Even if my life didn't even look that bad from the outside, the light of Christ showed that my life was being lived in rebellion to God. And for most of us, this process happened by the light of another Christian. I want you to consider this for just a moment. None of us live on an island, alone by ourselves for years and years, but rather we are surrounded by several different people. Perhaps it's books that you're surrounded by that you don't like to talk to people too much, but you've read. Or perhaps it's even the Word of God written by people that would communicate to us. Do you see what I mean here? Is like we're in constant contact with other people, other believers even. Even before we knew Jesus Christ, we could see these things. For some of it, it was uh, maybe a parent who was consistently telling us the truth of the Scripture. For some of us, it was like a friend or a workmate alongside of us who was consistently living rightly and telling us the truth about who God was. For some of us, it was actually a Navy chaplain. For some of us, it was a preacher. For some of us, it was a book that we had never read before and it opened our eyes to the truth. All these different things shine the light on the truth and show us what we really actually need. Today, we will finish the conversation that Paul began in verse 3 about sexuality. If you remember from last week, Paul told us that sex according to pagans wasn't really sex at all. It was a perversion of the beautiful gift that God had given to us to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. We saw that sexual sin, then false thinking about sex, and even false talking about sex had absolutely no place in the church. But Paul didn't just leave us there with a rule and said, let's move on from there. He explained why this empty view of sex was so bad. If you remember this, why it should be rejected by Christians. Last week, we talked about three reasons why we should have nothing to do with this, why this shouldn't be part of us. First, at the end of verse 5, and you can look at this if you want to. We talked about it last week. At the end of verse 5, Paul says that people who practice these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Second, we saw that believing wrong things about sex makes one a son of disobedience. You see there at the end of verse 6, the description given to these people as sons of disobedience. And third, this leads far worse in verse 6, we saw that God's wrath, his judgment, was on the sons of disobedience. These are, good, these are really good reasons not to disobey and to not see sex in the way that the pagans see sexuality. These are good reasons to think and act rightly when it comes to this issue. But today the passage continues. He isn't going to start a new topic. He's going to go deeper. If you look here, you're seeing that he shifts from strictly talking about sex to the deeper foundation of who we really are. He's now going to talk about our identity because Paul knows, as well we ought to know, that our identity, our identity ought to change everything that we do. He leads us in discussion on our identity and how it should affect the world around us. Let's pick up in verse 6, and then we're going to read into verse 7. He says in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the, upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. 
Okay, now that should be the end of the verse, right? Like he's followed this whole thing up. The idea here is that, you know, there's a, there's a period at the end of that sentence, you would think. Verse 7 is what I thought was supposed to be the grand takeaway here, that we are not to become partners of those who practice sexual immorality. That makes sense. We followed the flow of the argument here. Understand it. He uses this word partners here, as you can see, and the idea is almost like that of a co-partaker, a partner in the sense that we do the same things that they do. It's the exact same Greek word that he used back, if you look at chapter 3, verse 6, you guys will remember we go through this, we went through this. Paul used this word to describe the Gentiles, who, having trusted Christ to become Christians, and who had therefore become one with un- or believing Jews, were now one in the body of Jesus Christ. They were, therefore, partakers, as verse 6 says, of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Same word that's being used here. That means that people that were far apart are being brought near in this same promise. They're partakers in this. The same word is used of those who would involve themselves then in the same type of sexuality, this immorality, even if it's just thinking about it wrongly or talking about it wrongly. Paul isn't saying, don't join, Paul is saying, excuse me, don't join them in their lies. Don't be a partaker or a partner with what they're doing. Don't be partakers in this foolish understanding of sex. It's not true. You shouldn't be joining up with these people. So stop doing it. And as we come to the end of verse 7, it seems like a natural ending for Paul's admonition here. Having told you all about the sexual morality and its consequences, you shouldn't become partakers with them. You shouldn't be partners with them. Again, if I was writing, I think there would be a period here. But instead, he places a semicolon. He's going to continue from this spot and tell us even more. He actually puts a semicolon and opens up a new, deeper, more important topic for why he said his first admonition in the first place. Look at verse 8. For one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, in the book of Ephesians, we've seen him use these contrasts before. He said to us this formula of, you were once this thing, or at one time you were this, but now in Christ you are this thing. He said this over and over throughout Ephesians. He talked once about being dead and now being alive. He's talked about being strangers and aliens, and now you're actually family members of the household of God, fellow citizens even. He told us that we were once far off, and now that we have been brought near. He continues to use this. He even says that you have put off the old man and you have put on the new man. He's constantly telling us all about what we were and now what we are. And now here we get to this yet another, at one time you were that, but now you are this. Look at verse 8. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He's doing the same thing. He's getting at the same idea here, talking about this the whole time, that this is something that, that helps us understand with the illustration of light, though. It's another new analogy that it's bringing up. The light here represents truth, reality. Verse 9 tells us what is good and right and true, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Paul is saying, don't become partners or co-partakers in these things because although you just like these people at one time, you aren't anymore. That's not your identity any longer. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Yes, you were darkness. That is true. Note that he doesn't say that you were in darkness, but that you were darkness. Yes, you were darkness, but now you are light 
in the Lord. A glorious transformation has occurred when you trusted and loved Jesus Christ as king. Your life was no longer that which was defined by darkness. It was now defined by the rule of Jesus Christ the king, the Lord of truth, the Lord of light and goodness and what is right. That truth dominates everything that a believer does. It's so much so that Paul can actually say that believers are now light in the Lord. Seriously, he's probably, again, reminding us of our union with Christ because we know the struggle when we look at our own lives to say, really, am I light? Paul tells us the truth about who we are if we are in Christ. He is continuing to help us understand by the grace of God that we are now light in the Lord. That's why Paul says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. But then he says one more thing. Now this is true, walk as children of light. Now this isn't surprising to us, right? We, we, we know that we are light. We know our identity. Now what we are we're putting two and two together, we aren't realizing though that we can't live life as though we were our old person. I, I, I don't know if it's one of Satan's most famous tricks or we just naturally think it's true or maybe we just like to do what we do, but it's so easy to go back to the old man. It's a constant struggle for us. It's the thing that we like, even though we know he's been crucified with Christ. We love to go back to the deeds of the old man. Maybe it's comfortable. Maybe it kind of strokes our ego. Maybe it seems to, on the surface, please us. But Paul continually reminds us, that's not who you are. If you are that, you will evidence yourself in all these other ways that the Bible strictly condemns and shows are not true. And so he reminds us over and over again about who we are, our identity. He's saying you can't continue to live the way that you used to live because something has fundamentally changed in you. You are the opposite of what you used to be. Therefore, live according to the truth of who you are. This is not a new idea for us in Ephesians. You've heard it before. You even know the structure. I've, I've probably said it, I don't know, 70 or 80 times. Even the structure of Ephesians itself shows us this is who you are and this is who now we are supposed to be. Walk that way. In Christ, you were gloriously transformed into a new person. Here is who you were and who you are in Christ. Now by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit renewing your mind, live according to who you are. He says, walk as children of light. Here's the imperative. Here's the exhortation, the command for us. Hey guys, walk as children of light. That's who you are. It's time to do this. But we rightly ask, okay, he's telling us we're children of light. What does that mean? Well, Paul helps us here. Keep reading your Bible. Look at this. If you notice, our ESV Bible in verse 9 has a parenthesis. If you see that there, verse 9, it's in there. Um, this is right. This is the right way to see us. Verse 9 helps us to define what Paul is talking about. But before we get to the specifics, let's make sure we understand the whole. So I want you to do this. A parenthesis is putting a little point here, but the, the sentence continues afterwards. So let's see the whole together. Let me read verse 8 through verse 10 without the parentheses for a moment, then we'll come back to it. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, this isn't a way to say, just try your best. The verb here, when he says, try to discern what is right and pleasing to the Lord, 
the, the verb actually isn't even try in the Greek text. I'm not trying to get all Greeky on you here. What I'm trying to do is help us understand that although we see that, sometimes we think if you just try your best, it's all fine. It all comes out in the wash. Just try your best. No, what he's trying to explain is how this nuances itself. The best way to explain this verb that he's using is to discern. Discerning. It's a participle. Discerning or approving or even testing what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, it's an ongoing situation where we're trying to understand this afternoon, is this pleasing to the Lord? Tomorrow morning, is this pleasing to the Lord? As I'm sitting in my own thoughts, is this pleasing to the Lord? an ongoing process whereby we are trying to live according to our identity. So we understand this. He's, he's saying this is what we're supposed to be doing. We're to search the scriptures, to understand God's law, and live each day to please our God. As Christians, we want to please our king and obey. We want to then, if I can say it this way, we want to live the good life. Now, we have different definitions of what the good life is. But as we see our identity in Christ and know that our world is only a small picture of reality in the eternal kingdom, we start to realize that we want to live according to his rules and his way, and according to the fact that we're only going to get 70, 80 years in millennia and millennia long, millions and millions of years according to God's reign and rule. So as we see this, we want to live according to that. This is that idea of trying to please or discern or testing the things that I am doing if they would please the Lord. So, let me ask, do you, do you understand what that means? That you and I are not to move through our lives passively, hoping that somehow robotically or automatically we just become more holy? You know, I accepted Christ back here and I just know if I just keep on walking along, doing my life, that somehow I just automatically become more holy? Paul is saying, no, wake up. He, like, again, discerning what pleases the Lord. This is an ongoing process for us. Now look at verse 9. We'll see even more clarification. He says, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Now, are you having trouble in, with not knowing what a life dominated by light looks like? Okay. According to the Bible, start here. What is good? According to the Bible, what is right? According to the Bible, what is true? Here, just start here. Let us understand that when we're trying to discern what pleases the Lord, they will be things that flow out of the truth of Scripture of who He is and what we're called to do. Paul shows us that a life of light produces the fruit of light. Again, it's another analogy for us to see that this fundamental change inside of us produces good works. It doesn't produce things that are bad or things that are wicked or things that are false. It's a life that is dominated by what is good and right and true. In other words, it's a life that looks like Jesus Christ, one that's dominated by anything that is wrapped up in who God is, not false, not wicked, not things that would be hurtful or, 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 or uh, bad, but rather those things that proclaim the truth of who God is and live in reality. Paul is also, though, bring us to help us understand something about those other works, our sins. Notice that in verse 9, this phrase says, fruit of light. Now look at verse 11. He says, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. 
If you can't see it there, if maybe you don't have the Bible, but I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna put them here up for you in this imaginary whiteboard. It says, fruit of light, unfruitful works of darkness. He's juxtaposing the two ways to live here. He's showing us that what we are supposed to be doing are bearing or showing or producing the fruit of light. Not going back to what verse 11 will start talking about, the unfruitful works of darkness. In verse 9, he talks about the fruit of light, the things that should come out of those who trust Christ, the things that should be produced now that we are light in the Lord. So the parallel is clear here. You aren't darkness anymore, you're light. You don't continue unfruitful works of darkness, but rather produce fruitful works of light. You realize that you don't continue in the old actions that you used to do. Those things are works of the flesh. Paul talks about that in many other places. But I can say this, they are unfruit. <laughs> They're nothing that should be coming out of a believer. When you do these things, you're producing evidence to the contrary of who you say that you are. One who is light in the Lord does not go on producing unfruitful works of darkness, but instead they bear fruit that is in line with who they really are. So, simple, they walk in light. Now, I'm not saying that simply means it's easy. I'm saying simply that's what Paul is telling us here, that we are to therefore walk as children of light. And this leads us to where we've been heading this whole time. Paul says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Here is where we realize that the way that we live our lives is not only for ourselves and God. It's not only about our personal walks with God. Oh, that's certainly an important theme of our lives. Paul points out that Jesus has pointed this out in Matthew 5. Dan read it this morning. He said that we are both salt and light. Paul's leading to the point that the way we live our lives shines the light of truth, the light of Christ, to those who are around us. Paul calls us not to take part in these actions, but rather expose them for what they really are. Untruth, darkness, distortions, perversions of the true gifts of God. Now, this immediately, if we're honest, maybe that's just me. Some of us may not struggle with this, but like, Immediately, we're uncomfortable with this. Oh, man, I was okay with like trying to walk according to light, but now you're saying expose them? Like call people out? Like tell people that they're wrong? Is, is, is that what you're calling? Is this what's going on here? This is a kind of new twist I don't really want to do. Now, there might be some of us that kind of like this idea, but majority of us don't really enjoy doing something like this. It seems like we're jumping into people's lives, into their business and calling them out and exposing them. But hold on a minute. Read the verse and understand what he's talking about. Let's follow the flow of the verse to see if we can understand this rightly. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. He doesn't say expose people. He doesn't say expose institutions. His specific point here is that we are to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. But how do we do that? The context helps us here. Paul has already told us to walk as children of light. He showed us this. He already told us that the fruit of light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. He's already told us to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He is telling us to live our lives bearing good fruit, producing good works. And here, now we get to verse 11, Paul's using this, this little contrast to show us 
that if we are doing these sins, continuing on in this way, if we're acting as if these lies are true, then we have joined, we have taken part, we are co-partakers with those of darkness. And this goes back to verse 7, right? By our actions, we are saying we are partners with them. You've heard the phrase, your walk talks louder than your talk talks. It's the truth. Your walk or what you do, your actions speak louder than your words. That isn't to say you don't use words. This is a different situation. I'll preach on this a different time. But in this sense here, we're seeing him call us to walk according to the light, as the children of light that we are. This contrast in verse 11 shows us that our call is to live the opposite of the darkness, and that by doing so, we expose the truth by our very actions, by us calling sin, sin, by us explaining why this thing, this sexual immorality, would be wrong. Because once you get underneath that, what happens is an explanation of the gospel. It's an explanation of God as God, as though what he says matters the most. It exalts God over what we think about human sexuality. It shows us to be creatures. It exposes these things as distortions and not the truth. This is what he's talking about. We're called to live according to the truth. In other words, like I said, our actions speak louder than our words. Now, some of you may be wondering, oh good, that means I don't actually have to talk to anyone about sin. Uh, brother and sister, that is not what the text is saying either. I'm convinced that Paul's main point here is to live righteously, to walk according as a child of light. But that does not mean to be silent. On the contrary, we are soberly to call sin what it is, a distortion and a wicked rebellion against God. We are to speak the truth to the world if we care at all that they would know Christ. In the evangelistic sermons recorded in the Bible, Go ahead and look through the New Testament. You're going to see every time that they're giving an emotional message that makes people feel good about themselves so they join Team Jesus. Wrong. We all know that. That is not Jesus' way or the Apostles' way, but rather naming sin what it is, a rebellion against God, and helping people to know that they have the wrath of God against them unless they would turn to God. This is why, if you remember in Acts, some of the brothers say, what in the world should we do about this problem? And the apostles remind them, repent and believe the gospel. Turn to him. So the bad news is that unfruitful works of darkness are terribly damaging. In fact, they are evidence of a life that is pitted against God and therefore leads to eternal judgment and damnation. Friend, if you care at all about an unbeliever you must tell them the truth. You must show the deeds for what they are. They are those which condemn them to hell. They are terrified, they should be terrified of what that leads to. This life is not something they just snuffed out and everyone's gone and doesn't really matter. They are living before God and it is our place, not because we're so great, but to show the truth of those deeds to show those unfruitful works of darkness are lies, and it's not true. This leads us, though, back to how Paul finished this whole thing out. He says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. 
for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Okay, we understand what Paul is saying in verse 11. We're to expose these unfruitful works of darkness. I'm just going to insert a little question here. Why should we expose them? Because that's where Paul's actually going here with, with his next phrase. Why should we expose them? Well, you see everyone knows that these things really ought not even be talked about. They know that it's not something that you flaunt. There's a few people who flaunt their sin, but most people shut the door when they're doing most of these deeds. They're behind closed doors. They're at a place where they're not going to show them to the world. Again, sure, some people are fine with it having out in the open, but for most part, people take part in sexual immorality behind closed doors, in the darkness, and in ways that it's just better for us not to talk about. And so we don't talk about it for what it really is. Therefore, a lot of these sins just never get brought out. They never get the proper attention that they need. Now, I'm not talking about people's individual sins, like calling them out, I know that you did this other day when you did this thing. That's not what he's talking about here. Remember that Paul says that we were to expose these works of darkness for what they are. This isn't about people calling other people out for a specific sin that they know that they did. That may happen if they know something about this. But what he's calling us to today is about calling sexual immorality and all sins for what they are. Sin. Untruth. Understanding these things as distortions of God's beautiful gifts. So he's helping us understand there may be some other lesson here for us to learn in a different place about specific things that we may know about, but he's trying to help us understand the light that we ought to shine on these individual things is to show them that they're not true, to show them in the light of the gospel, that these are not truth and right and good. This isn't about calling people out of the back rooms and the wicked places where they engage in these acts. No, this is about exposing the sin for what it is, rebellion against God. Expose the sin to the sinner. That's what I'm talking about. That's what he's talking about. Of course, sin doesn't get committed, though, without a person involved. Sin isn't just some sort of nebulous concept out there. It is rebellion of a person against God. So we rightly understand that we are telling people they are taking part in a lie does ultimately condemn them to death. This is part of the truth. This is part of the gospel. And I admit... <laughs> But this is not the way to win friends and influence people, according to Dale Carnegie. The beauty of it, though, is this. By God's grace, in his timing, it does. It does influence people. That's what the text is telling us here today. Although you may not think it's a very good message or popular to tell people about the things that they're doing according to God in the Bible is sin, uh, he shows us that this is part of what it means to shine light and expose the truth. That's exactly what Paul says next. Look at this. When anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Now, as a Bible student, I'll admit, right here, it's very difficult in this sentence for us to understand exactly leading the progression from one place to the next. Because it's easy for us to think that this must mean automatic conversion. This person gets to be light. That's what's happening here. You see it there? We were to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Then it says that anything that is exposed by the light becomes visible. And then he explains that anything that becomes visible is light. Boom. This is awesome. It means we should just go around and be doing nothing but exposing sin all the time because we're going to constantly get converts. People are going to get saved left and right. They'll get to know Christ and they'll, they'll live in the truth automatically. But we know that this is not how God works. It is not the automatic response 
of those who are told that sin is sin for them to receive Christ as light. There's an important call, though, for us to expose the unfruitful works of darkness to unbelievers. But this does not mean that it will actually expose it to them. That is a work of who? It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of God to do something like this. You and I do not have the power to save. Thank God he does. He does and we can rejoice in this truth. So don't jump too far ahead of here without thinking about the rest of what Scripture teaches us about what God is doing. There's an important call for us to expose it, but it doesn't mean that we actually can to that person. This is the work that we desire to do, but there's no guarantee that we will be the ones that convince this person that we are speaking the truth. We know that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. We know that he works, and we don't know which way he goes, this way or that way, to do his work. However, we do know what Romans 10, 14 tells us. I'm going to read it because I think this is helpful for us. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? In other words, telling the good news of the gospel. Paul is not saying that there is you know, there will be automatic, automatic conversions. He is saying that when we expose sin for what it is and sinners see the truth, they will be converted. When God opens their eyes to the truth and they realize this, they will know Christ. Listen to these words again. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What he's pointing out to us is that a believer, one who is in Christ, is an agent of light. In other places, he, tells, he calls us um, uh, agents of reconciliation. Here, his point is that we are agents of light, that we are light in the Lord, and therefore our job is to shine. This isn't like cheap Sunday school tricks like this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I, I think that probably gets the right idea in one sense, but what he is saying is that your life shows the truth, and it reveals that these other things are distortions, and that they will lead to damnation. It is one of the most loving things that we could ever do for those who are around us to be Christians, to love Christ, to be obedient and hate sexual immorality and continually confess and repent of our own sin and trust Christ as we join in and, and, and ask him to work in us to put these deeds of the old man to death. This is God's work in us. And then we're called to live according to this truth and doing so we're to shine as gospel lights to those calling sinners out of darkness into his glorious light. And then he gives us this little quotation, which to be honest, is not one specific, you're not going to look that verse up. You're not going to find it. You're going to find it as almost like an amalgamation of several different texts. It's coming from, a, I think, two places in Isaiah and maybe even a spot in Jonah. And he's trying to give us an idea. Either it could be an early Christian hymn that they would sing and, and they would quote, or it's potentially just Paul's way of saying, let me sum this up for you well. The Bible says this, he makes it clear that we would understand, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The message is clear. The light must shine on a person for them to be converted. It must happen. No one wakes up from their spiritual sleep unless they are called to it. No one uh, goes from death to life unless someone calls them to life. And most importantly, not missing the true agent of transformation, the truest agent of transformation and effectual. No one becomes light 
without the light of Christ shining on them. We are light. Our Christian obedience, our living according to the truth, does not only evidence that we are actually children of light, which we've seen from this passage, not only does it tell us that, yes, we will take part in this inheritance, not only does it tell us that we will not have the wrath of God on us, it's this other beautiful thing. It's effective for the salvation of others. Do you realize that your obedience is not just between you and God? And it's not even just so that you don't get church disciplined out of our church? Do you realize that when we obey Christ and we see it for what it is and we call sin, sin, it is for the good of the nations. It is for the good of those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. It shines the light of Jesus Christ so that he can call to them, if that is his person, he can call that person from death to life. That his light shines on them. So, it's simple, right? Not easy, but it is simple. We are to walk as children of light. We are to take no part in any of the sexual immorality he just talked about, the crude joking, the impurity, all these, these different things that he just mentioned to us. And we know it's even di- di- bigger than that. But here in this one case study about sexual immorality, he goes way down deep for us to understand that this helps us understand our identity is sure in Christ, that we have an inheritance. But even broader than that, the way that we live will evidence itself in the truth of the light being shown to unbelievers. And that is not a wasted thing. By God's grace, it is used to convert those who do not know Christ yet. So, walk as children of light. Expose sin for what it is. If I can just encourage us, don't be afraid to call sin, sin. It's okay. You have the authority of Scripture to do so. Don't be afraid when people think that you're a bigot or that you're a hypocrite. Don't be afraid of the gospel. That's the truth of this. We don't, the authority's not our own. I think sometimes we're so afraid to be called a hypocrite rightly that we're not willing to be called a hypocrite wrongly. We're not willing to. We're just like, we don't want that association whatsoever. By the way, we're all actually hypocrites. By the grace of God, he calls us to himself, and he's the winner here. But what we can do is go back and say, this is what Scripture says. This is the truth about your life, and I'm not trying to make me better than you whatsoever. In fact, I am this person, but so are you. And the grace of Jesus Christ can reach into this and show you the truth so that you would be converted. This is the prayer that we have for our unbelieving family, for those that are around us, that they would see the light of Christ, both from our actions and from our words. So Paul gives us one more reason to live in obedience because he shows that we are agents of salvation, that we would shine forth the light of Christ and that others would be converted by God's grace. Pray for the light of the gospel then to shine out of you, your family. Take sin seriously. Kill it by God's grace and the, and, and the Holy Spirit's power. Kill it so that you too would be then shining as light. I pray this for ourselves and that we would continually show Jesus Christ that he might be salvation to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your, your merciful work that we do not deserve, that I do not understand. And God, I thank you, Lord, for your grace in saving the people that you have called yourself here at Cornerstone Bible Church. Lord, we realize our daily fight for what is right, to do what is right, actually has long-lasting and far-reaching effects. It's easy to think, God, that it doesn't. It's easy to think that it's just between me and you, Lord. 
but you show us even here that we are to shine as lights and be agents of salvation. Lord, help us have confidence in you, not in ourselves. We rest in you and your care and ask that you would use our small body and other Christians throughout our city and across the world as those who would shine the light of Jesus Christ on our neighbors and unbelieving ones who hate you. God, there are still people who will be brought in. You say so. So we ask that you would bring them into your kingdom, that they would repent of their sin, and they would love Jesus Christ. You are good, and we praise your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.